0: It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary to so the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, Episode Forty-Eight. A thank you this week goes out to Susan from Minnesota and Mary from Pennsylvania for their donations. As always, Susan and Mary, you are awesome, and you should feel awesome. Before we start this week, I would like to read a correction that I received from listener Philip from Canada. Now, he sent this correction in quite a while ago, but I thought that I would wait for our next naval-focused episode before reading it. He did a good job of describing his correction, so I'm just going to read a quote from the email that he sent me. Quote, I just listened to the Lusitania episode and being a bit of a boat nerd, wanted to offer one small correction. You described Lusitania as a, quote, armored merchant cruiser, but I think that should have been armed instead of armored. You may have been thinking of the armored cruiser, which was a kind of already obsolete medium cruiser, which continued to be used by the Royal Navy, and it would cost many British lives over the course of the war. Lusitania and other merchant ships were armed by having guns placed aboard, but were not armored. They continue to be totally vulnerable to all types of attack. Philip quote. Phillip is 100% correct in his correction. I had Armed Merchant Cruiser in my notes, but when I wrote this script for the episode, that somehow managed to morph into Armored, which is 100% not correct. This episode will also involve several Armored Cruisers and an Armed Merchant Cruiser, so I am going to be very careful to make sure that I get those designated correctly. Thank you, Philip, for the correction. This week, we will be jumping in our mental time machines to discuss events that occurred in 1914. Now, why am I talking about events in 1914, when we have been in 1915 for quite a while now? Well, long-time listeners of the show know that I missed several episodes last fall, and our topic today was one of those episodes that was missed. So everyone put on their mental time machines, and we will go back to a time when the trenches were freshly dug, hopes were high, and the war would be over by Christmas. This week and next week, we will cover the story of Admiral Spee and his German ships as they ran from the British all the way across the Pacific from their base in China all the way to South America and into the Atlantic. It is quite the story, and we will start by looking at Spee's voyage from China off to the coast of South America before looking at the British ships under Admiral Craddock that were sent to meet him. This will lead us up to the Battle of Coronel, where the groups will meet, but the discussion for the battle will wait until next week. About a year ago, we discussed the quick fall of all of Germany's Pacific colonies around the world. One of these colonies was the naval base of Tsingtao on the Chinese coastline. The base had been built at the cost of 50 million marks a price paid for the purpose of giving the German navy a large base in the Pacific from which to base a cruiser squadron. If a war were to start, this cruiser squadron could be used for any number of things to benefit the war effort. In the years leading up to the war, Singtao was a long-term service station for German sailors, and once assigned to the squadron, you were guaranteed to be there for over a year. In a situation that would seem a bit odd once the war started, the British and German sailors based out of their Chinese bases were quite friendly with each other. There was a long history of the two nations working together when they were based so far from home. This friendliness extended to general pleasantries, and also a custom of the Admiral of the Eastern Squadrons visiting each other once a year aboard their flagships at the time. In June 1914, in fact, just a few months before the war started, one such visit had taken place when the British had went to Tao aboard the Minotaur, the British-Asian flagship. There are reports of a soccer game taking place during this meeting which the English won, although the Germans took the prize in the tug-of-war. The arrangements for the two fleets went outside of simple pleasantries, though. There was a few times before the war that the British let the German sailors use their dry dock facilities at Hong Kong to prepare damage to their ships. The British dry dock was the only one large enough within thousands of miles to hold the German ships, so this service was actually quite important. When the war started, the commander of the German East Asia Squadron was Vice Admiral Count Maximilian von Spee. Spee was a devout Catholic, and an aristocrat who had joined the navy at the age of sixteen. Sixteen seems young to us as we look back, but in the naval traditions of Europe at the time, it was common for boys to join at an even younger age. Spee was known as a good commander and an aggressive one, who kept his men and ships in tip-top shape. These two factors were important for his position as commander. The post was obviously isolated from other German ships, And as such, should any hostilities break out, Spee would be almost entirely on his own. Keeping the men and ships he had as prepared as possible was important if he was to have any chance of contributing to the war. In the case of war with other European powers, Spee's orders were a bit vague. It was very dependent on exactly who the other countries were that Germany was fighting with, or really, whether or not Britain was among them. If Britain was not involved, Spee should do some commerce raiding if possible, but then try and get his ships home, since they wouldn't have much to do in the Pacific. If Britain was involved, then things became a bit more tricky. The same types of activities were expected, a bit of commerce raiding, and then trying to get back to Germany. But when the largest navy in the world was trying to stop both of these activities, well, I'm sure you can see the problem. Spee had under his command five warships, The first two ships, and the backbone of the squadron, were the Scharnhorst and Nisenau, both armored cruisers at 11,400 tons, with a 22-knot top speed. They boasted eight eight 8-inch guns, and were also seven years old, and this was important at a time when naval technology was advancing so rapidly. They were very capable, and easily capable of standing their ground against all but the very newest of the British armored cruisers. Spee also had three light cruisers, the Emden, the Leipzig, and the Nurnberg, all of which had been completed between 1906 and 1908. They were all around 3,500 tons, with a top speed of 25 knots, and 10 4-inch guns. For light cruisers, they were quite good, and would be able to hold their own. These ships were as new and as good as they were, because the Germans were fully aware, that if they wanted the squadron in Asia to be able to do anything but get destroyed by the British ships, they had to be at least reasonably new, fast, and able to take care of themselves. Spee also had a sizable flotilla of colliers and supply ships, both extremely important in the wide expanses of the Pacific Ocean. Spee also had two sons, both of them aboard ships in the squadron, with one aboard the Nuremberg and another aboard the Nisenau. On July 7th, the first news of possible troubles in Europe reached Spee. The message arrived on that day said, The political situation is not entirely satisfactory. Twenty days later, on the 27th, Spee was informed of the Austrian ultimatum to Serbia. Spee was out to sea at the time, doing the customary summer tour of German colonies in the Pacific. When he heard the news, he sent orders to the Nuremberg and the Emden to meet him with the fleet of supply ships. On August 1st, Spee received the next message, informing him that there was a threatened state of war in Europe. At this point, Spee put all of his ships on a war footing. All the ships were put on a wartime routine of two watches, with lookouts posted at all times, the guns constantly manned and ready for action. This move to war footing also involved the jettisoning of any non-essential items on board the ships. Most of this non-essential material went ashore at port, but some of it just went into the ocean. Every pound counts at sea, so things like hardwood furniture, decorations, and other peacetime material was gotten rid of in the interest of maybe gaining a fraction of a knot in top speed, because you never know when you might need a fraction of a knot. On August 2nd, SPEE was informed of war with Russia, and on the 5th, of war with Britain. On the 6th the Nürnberg Imden and the fleet of supply ships met up with Spee's other ships and now the question for Spee was what exactly to do with the ships available to him he had many options some of which were appealing the first question he had to answer was whether or not he would keep his little squadron together or separate them splitting up his ships meant that they had a better chance of finding shipping to interdict and capture The simple law of probability meant that the more locations in which there were German ships searching for merchant ships, the better chance they had of finding them. It also meant that it would be harder for the British to hunt them down, and if one of them were caught, the other ships could keep on raiding. All of these were very attractive positives for splitting up, but there were negatives to that plan as well. The biggest problem was that, even if they were raiding for a while, they would all be hunted down eventually and either forced to surrender or destroyed, It was just simply inevitable that a navy as strong as the Royal Navy would be able to finally pick them all up. Keeping his ships together was another option for Spee. This had some obvious advantages. If his ships were all together, they would have a better chance of beating any British ships in their path, but it also had some problems. They may not be able to find as much British shipping, if they found any at all. To balance out this negative, there was another door open to Spee when he had all of his ships together, and that door was to conduct operations other than commerce raiding. With all of his ships together, Spee could do some coastal raids against British ports, or even maybe consider a few battles with the Royal Navy, as long as he could avoid confrontations with the big ships, he stood a pretty solid chance of coming out victorious against fleets of cruisers and destroyers. Whether or not to keep his ships together was not the only choice he had to make, though. He also had to decide what to do with the ships in either scenario. He had several different options available to him. He could just hide his ships in the vastness of the Pacific. I mean, he didn't have many bases, and the number of bases would shrink as German colonies fell. But with his supply ships, he could easily evade the British for a while. Trying to find a few ships in the Pacific in 1914 was like trying to find a needle in a haystack, except for the haystack is actually as big as a football field. Another option Spee had was to go raiding around Australia or into the Indian Ocean. Both of these areas were heavily trafficked by British merchant ships and would be lucrative for the Germans to raid. Spee, however, ruled out this option early on because there would be no way to keep his ships supplied while they ran around the Indian Ocean. All of the ports around the area were controlled by the British, so getting neutral or German supply ships would be difficult, bordering on impossible. Also, while he could probably get into the Indian Ocean without incident, the chance of getting back out again was essentially zero. Out of all of these choices available to him, Spee made his choice as this. He would keep his ships together and he would sail for South America. It was a very, very long way to South America, and they would try to do some commerce raiding along the way, but it would be mostly just a lot of sailing in that direction day after day until they reached the coast. South America was chosen because it housed many German businesses and merchant ships. These could be used to resupply the German ships and keep them going. Maybe even get them all the way back to Germany. There would, however, be one ship that would not be making the journey, and that was the Emden. The Emden was the fastest of the German ships, and the captain of the Emden suggested that he take his ship into the Indian Ocean. One light cruiser would be able to do damage to the area, but it would be easier to keep it supplied off of the resources of captured ships. One ship was far easier to keep stocked in this method than five were. Upon leaving Spee's fleet, the captain of the Emden would say, I thank your excellency for the confidence placed in me. This confidence would be very well placed, and the Emden would wind up being the most successful German commerce raider of the war. As for Spee, he had made his choice out of a set of pretty bad choices, all of which had a very high chance of ending with him being sunk by the Royal Navy. Churchill would write that von Spee was a cut flower in a vase, fair to see but bound to die, end quote. and this was a pretty accurate assessment. Spee would be able to duck, dodge, and dive as fast as his ships would carry him, but at some point it was almost inevitable that no matter what his plan was, either bad luck, lack of supplies, or the skill of a British admiral would bring about his downfall. Even though I'm sure Spee knew the odds, he had made his plans, and now he began to prepare. On August 12th, Spee fully resupplied all of his ships from his supplies. Over the next few months, Spee would stop for coaling far more frequently than was the norm at this time in history. He did this to make sure that his ships could be separated from their supplies at any time and not have a problem. Just to give you an idea of how frequently coal had to be loaded... The Scharnhorst and Nisenau could both hold 2,000 tons of coal, a sizable amount for sure, but they burnt at least 100 tons a day while cruising in the open ocean. So they could go 20 days maximum with the coal that they had on board. However, if they were in a situation where speed was necessary, like if they were being chased by a British ship, they could burn up to 500 tons of coal a day. So speed of travel was extremely important when it came to getting the most out of the coal on board the ships. Also, coaling wasn't an easy task for the soldiers involved. It was done almost entirely by hand during this period, and as such was hot and sweaty work that involved a lot of coal dust hanging around while the ship was being loaded. The heat of the South Pacific in the summer, of course, didn't help anything. On August 13th, with as many supplies as possible on his warships, including bags of coal setting on deck due to lack of space below, Spee said goodbye to the Emden and set off. Over the course of a month, he would bounce between various islands in the Pacific. He visited the German colonies of Samoa and Tahiti before they fell to the British. During his cruising, he used wireless to communicate with his ships, and with German embassies all over the Pacific to arrange supply ships to meet him at various places. It was partially through these communications that the British were able to track the Germans as they moved across the Big Ocean. After sailing for a month and a half, Spee was closing in on South America, and on October 4th, he was contacted by the German light cruiser, the Dresden. The Dresden had been raiding in the South Atlantic before rounding the Cape and coming into the Pacific, and the captain wanted to meet up with Spee and join his little task force. This seemed like a fine idea to Spee, and he sent a message to the Dresden on where to meet. There was just one problem, though. The British were able to intercept the wireless message sent to the Dresden, and they were able to decipher the location they planned to meet, Easter Island, and they would arrive on October the 12th. When they arrived at Easter Island, Spee's ships had steamed 12,000 miles through the tropical heat without an engine breakdown or other mishap, an accomplishment all by itself. But they hadn't really contributed much to the war. They hadn't found a single merchant ship on their route. As they approached the island, they sent a wireless message to the Dresden that they had arrived, and also learned that there were British ships in the area, ships that we will discuss shortly. Easter Island was a British possession, but there wasn't a wireless station on the island in 1914, or any other form of permanent communication to the mainland. The island was completely dependent on ships from the mainland to deliver them news, and as such, they had not received news of the start of the war, now just a few months old. Because of this, they assumed that the Germans were still friends. German ships had been welcomed in British ports for over a century, so why would October 1914 be any different? The businessmen on the island filled Spee's orders for supplies, and they received a check written to cover them. In what was a nice gesture, the German authorities on the mainland would actually honor this check when it was delivered to them sometime later, even though the war was still on. Spee and his ships stayed on the island for five days, but Spee was beginning to believe that a clash with the British would happen soon, and he wasn't wrong. The news of the British ships moving in on his position were becoming more and more frequent. So which British ships were coming? Who was commanding them? Why were they there? Well, we will get to those answers here in a moment. But first, let's follow up on that story about the Emden. As I mentioned earlier, it le- the Emden left Spee's fleet and went to the Indian Ocean. For three months, the light cruiser sailed around the ocean, and during that time it found, captured, and or sank 29 neutral merchantmen, 16 British merchant ships, a Russian cruiser, and a French destroyer. While this was obviously harmful to British prestige, there was almost no loss of life. The crew of the Emden always took all of the men from the ships on board before sinking them. Basically, they were following prize rules of the sea to a T and being quite the gentleman about it. The only deaths that were caused were two French sailors aboard the destroyer, and these two men received full military funerals at sea, overseen by French officers. The Emden's luck couldn't last forever, though and on November 9th, it was finally caught at the Cocos Islands. The Emden had moved in to attack an Australian troop convoy, and was confronted by an Australian cruiser and forced to surrender. The Emden had been a headline story in the presses during its raiding days, and after the news of its capture reached London, the Daily Telegraph would write, "...it is almost in our heart to regret that the Emden has been captured or destroyed. The war on the sea will lose something of its piquancy, its humor, and its interest." Now that the Empton is gone. For the British Navy, the search for Spee was an item on their to do list right from the start of the war. This was not an easy task, though. They did know where he started from, and they had a few confirmed sightings of his ships from islands in the Pacific. They had some radio signals as well, but even these became few and far between once Spee reached that giant Pacific dead zone far to the west of South America. This was also a time before radar, before reconnaissance satellites, before all the other cool toys that modern navies have to find other ships. Churchill would say, quote, As the days succeeded one another and grew into weeks, taking the Caroline Islands as the center, we could draw daily widening circles, touching even more numerous points where they might suddenly spring into action, quote. The problem with the Pacific was simply one of size. You couldn't just go looking for ships. Earlier, I mentioned trying to find a needle in a football field, or I guess a pitch for our European listeners, but it wasn't even that easy. Now imagine you are an ant on that field looking for that needle, without the benefit of perspective to see larger areas of the field at one time. I believe it was Churchill who said that on a very large map of the world, the area a single ship could see at sea at any given time was the size of a pinhead. Now, I'm not sure that this is precisely to scale, but it does certainly provide a good mental picture of what a ship could see relative to the total size of the ocean. So it was impossible for ships to just go find each other, so the British were waiting on some other form of intelligence. But even if they were to learn of the whereabouts of the ships, they weren't perfectly prepared to deal with them. The British had a battle cruiser, Australia, and around 12 armored cruisers in the Pacific, But their main job was to safeguard the merchantmen and the troop ships, so they couldn't go chasing after the Germans. It was vitally important to the British war effort that the shipping be protected. This was as much to protect neutral ships as the British ones. If the British couldn't protect the ships from neutral countries, there was a chance that they may not carry British supplies moving forward. To quote the Great War at Sea, Britain could not claim complete control of the seas, and must suffer serious commercial loss and, above all, damaging loss of prestige among neutral nations, notably the United States and the Republics of South America. Because of these factors, most of the British ships spent the first few months of the war either cruising the merchant lanes or escorting troops to Germany's Pacific colonies so that they could be captured. All of these were captured in relatively short order, as we discussed way back in our previous naval episodes. In a global sense, the priority of the Royal Navy was always in protecting the Atlantic and Mediterranean seas, followed in priority by the Indian Ocean due to its links to India and Australia. The Pacific always fell to the last of the list in terms of importance. In the Atlantic, the British had two light cruisers to worry about that had been raiding shipping. One of these was the Dresden that would join Spee after being chased by an Admiral Craddock, Craddock had under his command two ships, the Good Hope and the Monmouth, both armored cruisers. They were both old, in fact they had been decommissioned before the war started. After war was declared, they were quickly reactivated to serve as protection for commerce ships. These ships had been built in 1900, and were deficient in just about every way when faced with the prospect of newer German fighting ships. On September 14th, Craddock was given orders to patrol the Straits of Magellan, with the possibility of meeting Spee in the future, should he move towards South America, which we know he was. He would be joined by the Glasgow, an armored cruiser far more modern than the Good Hope and the Monmouth that was currently patrolling the South Atlantic. More importantly, he would be receiving two other ships. The first, and the most disappointing, was the Canopus. The Canopus was an old, obsolete battleship. It was slow, It could only make 12 knots, and it was barely able to stay running for any great length of time. It had been scheduled for scrapping in 1915 before the war started, but was rescued from this fate by the war. It was pretty much worthless when it came to facing German ships in the open ocean. In Craddock's diaries, he actually questions why it was sent at all. While the Canopus was very disappointing, the other ship, the Defense, was the exact opposite. The defense was a modern armored cruiser, 14,600 tons, four 9.2-inch guns, ten 7.5-inch guns. The defense would be by far the best ship in the theater, and would be a huge benefit in any confrontation with the German ships, all of which it outclassed. With the message of the two ships that he was receiving, Craddock also received a long, very confusing set of orders. The confusion caused by these and future orders would play a role in the tragedy that was Craddock's journey. In the orders, Craddock was supposed to engage Spee, but also to defend certain areas. He was to keep Spee out of the Atlantic, but was also supposed to draw him into battle however possible. He was supposed to keep the Canopus with him to take on the German ships with its 12-knot speed, but was somehow supposed to also catch the German ships who could do 24 knots. These are just some basic examples of why these orders were so confusing. As we discuss the following set of events leading up to the Battle of Coronel, remember that the orders given between London and Craddock were often over telegraph, and these would take some time to reach Craddock, and then some time for his response to reach London. There are instances where there are replies sent back before replies from previous replies that had information that would affect the newer replies. So, Craddock was asking questions London thought it had answered already, or answering questions that London thought were already answered. So, basically, if you're a bit confused right now, then you're just in the same place that everybody else was in 1914. There was just a lot of confusion about Craddock's fleet, his plans, the role the Canopus was supposed to play, what ships he would have available to him in the coming weeks. All of these things were just sort of up in the air on both sides, in London and in Craddock's fleet. With the facts of this confusion in our minds, let's look at what happened on September the 18th. On that day, Spee was spotted on his visit to the German colony of Samoa and the Admiralty believed that this meant that he was going to stay on the Asian side of the Pacific. Because of this, they canceled the orders for the defense to join Craddock. He only ever needed that ship if Spee got involved, and now it looked like he wouldn't. The Canopus would still be going, but it would be alone. This fact, this incredibly important fact, that the strongest ship that Craddock was supposed to have would never appear was never properly communicated to Craddock. All of his actions over the coming weeks were based around the fact that he would be joined by the defense at some point in the future. For a good part of October, Craddock stayed in port, while other ships searched for the Dresden, which they still thought was in the Atlantic. When the British finally learned that the Germans were headed for Easter Island, the message that Craddock was given was, quote, It appears that Scharnhorst and Neisenau are working across to South America. You must be prepared to meet them. Canopus should accompany Glasgow, Monmouth, and Otranto, the ships to search and protect trade in combination. If you propose Good Hope to go with them, leave Monmouth on the eastern coast. End quote. Craddock quickly responded that he wasn't sure that this was a good idea. If the Dresden was able to join the other German ships, Craddock would be even more outgunned than he already would be. He also asked about the defense, which he still believed was coming. This is one time where both sides got very confused. Remember, London knew that Craddock wasn't getting the defense, so they didn't mention it in the message above. So Craddock asked what the plan should be for the defense when it arrived, which caused the London to wonder what he was on about. He wasn't getting the defense. At which point Craddock was like, W-2F mate, what are you on about? Of course I am, you told me I was. But he wasn't, and it would take far too many messages to sort out which ships Craddock would and wouldn't have in the upcoming confrontation. In a separate thread of messages, Craddock suggested that a new fleet be created specifically to safeguard the South Atlantic, especially if he was going to take most of his ships to the Pacific. This was a very good and reasonable idea, and Craddock hoped that it would mean more ships would be sent into the area, and he would be put in command of all of them. Craddock would then be able to move the Canopus and his slowest and oldest ships to the Atlantic fleet, while he took only his best ships after speed in the Pacific. While this was a good plan, it didn't quite play out that way. Instead, another admiral was put in command of the Atlantic ships. And just to add insult to injury, he was given the defense as one of his ships. You know, just because. After the situation with the defense was sorted out, the messages between Craddock and the Admiralty took, uh, took the format of Craddock either directly or indirectly questioning the usefulness of the Canopus, while London believed that the Canopus was the critical piece of the puzzle that guaranteed victory. That the Canopus could only maintain 12 knots, roughly half the German top speed, didn't seem to bother anyone in London very much. It had a very nice set of guns, after all. To quote Castles of Steel, Craddock thus faced a painful choice. He could obey the Admiralty instructions and operate in company with the Canopus, thereby forfeiting any chance of bringing the Germans to action. Or he could fight without the Canopus and face the probability of defeat. Churchill considered the second alternative, fighting without the Canopus, illogical and disobedient. Craddock considered the first, letting the German ships slip by unmolested, cowardly, and unthinkable. Craddock was an old sailor. He'd spent 40 years in the Navy after joining at the age of 13. He had participated in battle, had many awards and commendations. He fully understood what his chances would be if he met Spee's squadron in battle with the ships he had at his disposal. Because of this, he gave a packet of documents to the governor of the Falkland Islands before he left, and asked that they be sent home should he perish in battle. The last message that Craddock received from London before he left for the Pacific was that the Admiralty fully believed that the five ships he had under his command, the Canopus, the Monmouth, the Good Hope, the Glasgow, and an armed merchant cruiser, a toronto all out-of-date ships, were enough to meet Spee in battle and defeat him. Next week, we will very quickly see how wrong London was. Thank you for listening, and have a great week. This is Carl on his motorcycle. Let's ride till we run out of gas! And this is Carl off his motorcycle. Also what is very different than teak, people confuse the two. On his motorcycle. Hey, check out that view! Off his motorcycle. Let's do puzzles in the break room. On. Look at all that open road! Off. Look how long my fingernails are getting. You're better on your bike. Progressive helps keep you on it. Get a quote in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.